DiscerningHearts.com presents Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors. I'm your host, Chris McGregor, and I am delighted to be joined by Father Wade Menezes, who is a member of the Fathers of Mercy. He's a contributing writer to the National Catholic Register, Our Sunday Visitor, Catholic Twin City Circle, Lay Witness, Pastoral Life, and Christian Ranchman. Father Wade has been a guest on numerous EWTN programs and has hosted several series, including Crux of the Matter, The Wonders of His Mercy, The Ten Commandments of Catholic Family Life, The Four Last Things, God Calls Us to Himself, and The Gospel of Life versus the Culture of Death. With Father Wade Benesis, we go inside the pages of The Four Last Things, a catechetical guide to death, judgment, Heaven and Hell by EWTN Publishing. Father Wade, thank you so much for joining me. You're very welcome, Chris. Great to be with you today. The Four Last Things, a Catechetical Guide to Death, Judgment, Heaven, and Hell is fantastic. Thank you so much for writing this and giving this to uh, the Universal Church. Well, you're most welcome. You know, I think it's a topic that's been greatly forgotten, indeed a a doctrine that's been greatly forgotten since the Second Vatican Council. And, of course, that's not to blame the Council at all. Vatican II was truly, sincerely, and authentically a valid ecumenical council of the Church. But I think what happened after the Council is certain liberal progressive forces took hold and so certain doctrines were downplayed, the eschatology, ex- eschatology of the Church being one of them, eschatology being the study of the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell, three of which will apply to each individual person personally, that is, death, judgment, heaven, or hell. I always like to say, too, that Vatican II is not the cause of these forgotten doctrines. Again, it's truly an authentic council, but it is the occasion by which some of these more traditional doctrines of the Church have been forgotten. I think the doctrine of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist is another one, mm-hmm. uh, and that's a, topic, that's a topic for another book. <laughs> but uh, the four last things, I really think, is, is one of those areas as well. It is uh, quite, I mean, in, in all reality, the most important things. Well, it's to do with eternal life, Mm -hmm. you know. Uh, We will die. We will be judged. And in the end, it will be heaven or hell. And uh, again, this is a doctrine that the Church has has taught since the first centuries. Uh, It's greatly upheld by sacred scripture, sacred tradition, and the magisterium of the Church. That is the teaching office of the Church from the Latin word magister, which means teacher which itself, the magisterium, is rooted in the apostolic college of the original Twelve Apostles, with Peter at its head and and Peter's successors um, leading throughout the centuries. And uh, all, all of this is supported by and safeguarded by the sacred deposit of faith, and the sacred deposit of faith itself is that heritage of the Catholic faith, contained in that three-legged stool of sacred scripture and tradition and handed on in the church from the time of the apostles from which the magisterium uh, draws all that it proposes for belief as being divinely revealed by god and the church's eschatology is one of these areas these things will take place and so we need to we need to know the doctrine just like we would want to know about the, the the church's sacramental economy with the seven sacraments just like we would want to know about the doctrine of the real presence 
just like we would want to know about the doctrine of the communion of saints, um, all these beautiful doctrines of our one holy Catholic and apostolic faith, we should know about and, and be good students of. Um, I always like to remind my listeners, regardless of your state in life, whether single, married, or a consecrated priest, brother, or sister, um, and this whether one be an active religious or a contemplative religious, once baptized and confirmed, always a good student of the faith. Always a good student of the faith. Seems to me that for a particular generation or two, as you said, this particular doctrine of the Church is something that has been lost. I, I, I'm not exactly sure. I don't, I, I don't even know if you can... Uh, some might, as you have rightly said, want to blame it maybe on Vatican II, but I don't think that's it. I think it's the just even the idea of maybe judgment that we are very afraid, for whatever reason, to speak about that. Yeah, you know, I think after the Second Vatican Council, I think the shift was to be more positive overall. Uh, the positive points of the doctrines of the Church, and that's fine, but we can't forget those things that are seemingly negative to the human spirit, like, like judgment, huh? who likes to be judged. Mm-hmm. But, so, for example, I think that the shift after the Second Vatican Council was to focus more on a salvation in heaven rather than on the reality of judgment and the possibility of hell. It's almost like the modern-day man and woman of the 1960s, and the council ran from 62 to 65. Uh, it's almost as though uh, the progressive forces in the Church at that time thought that the modern-day man and woman of the, of the 1960s uh, was too above uh, talking about judgment and the possibility of hell, that instead they would only be attuned or would only listen to the positivity of salvation in general and, and heaven in general. Well, that that's fine, that, that may be true, but remember, when it comes to the four last things, each one of the four last things fully complements the teaching and doctrine of the other three individual last things. So you can't really talk about hell and the, the evil and atrocity that it is for those who choose to go there by non-repentant mortal sin, grave matter, fullness of knowledge, and deliberate consent, which I'll talk more about in a moment. But you can't talk about the atrocity and reality of what hell is without talking about the beauty of heaven. But you can't talk about the beauty of heaven for all eternity, what we're called to for eternal communion and eternal happiness with God, without also talking about what an atrocity hell is. So precisely we can work to avoid hell. So each of the four last things fully complements each one of the other three. They are a cohesive whole. Each one complements the other. This is why the Church has always taught the four last things together collectively. You know, one of the major impetuses, Chris, for for writing the book was I came across a survey in a modern U.S. newspaper. This is about a year or so ago, just before Halloween. And it was a survey of the top ten things that people are afraid of. Mm -hmm. Top ten things that people are afraid of. And I'd like to go through the list quickly here. From number 10 down to number 1, number 1 being the thing that people answered in the survey they are most afraid of. So starting at number 10, going to the dentist. People are afraid of going to the dentist. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is an American survey, by the way. Sure. Uh, dog, dogs were number 9. Hmm. Flying in airplanes, number 8. Severe weather, such as thunder and lightning, number 7. Uh, the dark was number 6. Heights, number 5. 
other people made number four on the list. We're afraid of other people. And the example given was, for example, public speaking, huh? mm-hmm. uh, speaking in front of groups. Number three, places with no easy escape. Hmm. Uh, Elevators, bridges, and hot air balloons were the top three on that individual list of number three, places with no easy escape. Spiders made number two on the list, and number one on the list was snakes. Now, when Hmm. I saw this list of top ten things, I thought to myself, immediately I thought to myself, where is hell? Why did hell not make this list? Are people not afraid of hell anymore, the reality of hell? And then, just as quickly, Chris, it came to mind, ah, but snakes is number one. That's how cunning the serpent is from the book of Genesis. That's how cunning the devil is. That's how cunning the father of all lies, Satan, Lucifer is, is that he won't put hell on the list, his kingdom, but he will make himself number one on the list. The image that's used for him in Scripture, in the book of Genesis, the serpent, the snake, that's how cunning he is. And this was a wake-up call for me to not only do the book on this topic, but to also do an EWTN series for it as a five-night parish mission that I took live on the road with me as, as a Father of Mercy. And the Fathers of Mercy preach parish missions, retreats, and devotions. And our specialty is the, is the four- or five-night parish mission. So I actually made this a series as well for Advent, because Advent focuses on the two comings of Christ. As St. Augustine says, let us not forget Christ's first coming precisely so that we do not regret his second coming. Let us not forget Christ's first coming precisely so that we do not regret his second coming. This was the summation of the season of Advent as taught by St. Augustine, because Advent, indeed, leading up to Christmas, leading up to Christ's first coming as the incarnate God-man as a baby, um, focuses on Christ's two comings. And so I took this series on the road uh, during Advent as an Advent mission series. And uh, this was one of my main points to the people. The other impetus was, as I said, I just believe sincerely so that it's just a forgotten doctrine since the Second Vatican Council. Uh, and if people do know about the doctrine of eschatology, the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell, they can't articulate it. They, they, in, even in a, in a short synthesis, they, 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 can't, they can't articulate it. For example, I'm amazed at how many Catholics believe, and I've talked to such Catholics on on the road at the missions, during the parish missions, how many Catholics believe that purgatory, going to purgatory is an automatic doctrine. Mm -hmm. There is no avoiding purgatory. It's ipso facto that you're going to go to purgatory before entering heaven. Chris, that's a heresy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The church church does not teach that. God's plan A for each individual soul is to go straight to heaven when they die. His plan B, if you want to call it that, his plan B would be for the soul to go to purgatory and then enter heaven in a delayed fashion, uh, because indeed the holy souls in purgatory, and they are that, holy souls, uh, the holy souls in purgatory are assured heaven, after their temporal punishment is atoned for, all right? Uh, but if the truth be known, if the doctrine be known, God's plan A for us is to go to heaven directly when we die. Look, purgatory is about one thing and one thing only, period. I'm going to say it again. Purgatory is about one thing and one thing only, period. And it's this, the need to atone for temporal punishment for already forgiven mortal and venial sin committed on earth, if at the time of the earthly death, their earthly death, the person has not yet atoned for that temporal punishment. In other words, therefore, 
if at the time of their earthly death they have already atoned for that temporal punishment due to already forgiven mortal and venial sin, if they've already atoned for it at the time of their earthly death, they indeed go straight to heaven when they die. What is temporal punishment? It's the effects. That's with an E, not an A. Mm -hmm. It's the effects, the residue of sin after we've committed it. Okay. Uh, for example, Chris, let's say you and I are both in the bank parking lot at the same time, and I go to leave before you. You're still inside the bank. I back up my truck into your car, and it's a pretty good dent on your fender. And I immediately go back into the bank and say, Chris, I'm so, so sorry. I just backed into your car. I, I dented your fender pretty bad. And you, in the great graciousness of your Catholic Christian heart, you say, oh, Father Wade, please don't worry about it. And, and then you grab my arm and, and you look me right in the eye and you say, Father Wade, I mean it. Don't worry about it, Father Wade. It's as though you never, ever committed it. I truly, sincerely, authentically forgive you. Well, that's wonderful. You have indeed, Chris, indeed authentically forgiven me. As you said yourself, it's as though I never, ever dented your car. But the truth of the reality is, what remains in the parking lot, Chris? Mm -hmm. A dented car. A dented car. Yeah. Your dented car. Yeah. So that, even though you have sincerely, authentically forgiven me, like the sacrament of penance does, through the Son to the Father, and the Father says, hey, because of my Son, acting as your public defender in the tribunal of mercy, the sacrament of penance, I, as the just judge, say, hey, it's as though you never committed the sin. You're forgiven, because my son, the incarnate God-man, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, as your public defender, has forgiven you in the tribunal of mercy, okay? And, and a tribunal is a court. It's a court of mercy, the sacrament of penance. Beautiful, great, I've been forgiven. The priest gives me absolution in the person of Christ, in persona Christi. But the residue of my sin remains. So I need to carry out such things as... Uh, the three eminent good works, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. I need to carry out any combination of the 14 works of mercy, seven for the body, seven for the soul, the corporal and spiritual works of mercy, all with a particular willed intention that I'm doing these things for atonement, as a temporal atonement for my already forgiven mortal and venial sin. Um, I could strive for a plenary or partial indulgences, these are, how, these are ways that we atone for our temporal punishment, so that when we, when we do die, God willing, we die in a state of grace, that is, with no mortal sin on our soul. Uh, we die with all the benefits of a happy and, and grace-filled death, you know, uh, holy viaticum, one's final holy communion, prayers of commendation for the dying, uh, the anointing of the sick, um, even the apostolic pardon, uh, which is a plenary indulgence in and of itself. Uh, we die with all these things, there's no temporal punishment. So, now, Catholics that I've met on the road who believe that purgatory was an absolute, they surely don't believe this in malice. They're simply, sincerely in ignorance. They, for whatever reason, they believe that purgatory is an absolute. And I'm like, no way. That, that's, if anything, if you want to call it God's plan B for you, that would be his plan B for you, because, again, at least the holy souls in purgatory are saved after their temporal punishment is atoned for. Mm -hmm. But listen, my brother, listen, my sister, God's plan A for you is to go straight to heaven and to live such a holy life on this earth right now, that you live in such a way that not only are you in a state of grace with no known mortal sin on your soul, but you also have no temporal punishment to atone for because you haven't sinned, because, um, or if you do sin, you get right back up. 
uh, because you have done the three eminent good works, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, because you have carried out any combination of the 14 works of mercy, uh, because uh, you have uh, strived for a, a plenary indulgence uh, or a partial indulgence. I strived for a plenary indulgence yesterday here at the Shrine of the Most Blessed Sacrament in Hansville, Alabama. Bishop Robert Baker of Birmingham has declared it a Marian year in the diocese of Birmingham in honor of the 100th anniversary of the Fatima apparitions. And here at the beautiful Lourdes Grotto, in honor of Our Lady of Lourdes, at the Shrine of the Most Blessed Sacrament in Hansville, Alabama, uh, if, if you visit the, the grotto, which is a replica of Our Lady of Lourdes in, in France, that grotto, uh, and pray for the needs and intentions of the Holy Father, go to confession, receive Holy Communion, uh, say the Apostles' Creed, and carry out a Marian devotion, which I did, I prayed the rosary, I have the moral certitude of faith that I received a plenary indulgence. What a beautiful gift that is. Mm-hmm. And it's through the magisterium. Holy Mother Church's magisterium, again, rooted in the Apostolic College through the power of the keys, with Peter at its head, and Christ gave Peter the keys uh, to, to bestow on her children, the members of the Church, these treasuries of merits won by Christ from the cross on that first Good Friday, to dispense to her sons and daughters, the members of the Church, through the merits of the saints who have made it to heaven uh, through their own holy lives, uh, these graces, these merits, these, these plenary and partial indulgences. So this is how we atone for that temporal punishment. This is the beauty of being Catholic. This is the greatness of the fullness of the Christian faith, of the one holy Catholic and apostolic faith. Look, our Lord was the bridegroom, the Church is his bride, right? Mm-hmm. That's constant imagery in Scripture, especially in the book of the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation. When our Lord died, it's like the groom, the husband, leaving in his will everything to his wife. He left everything in his wife, to his wife in his will, and not only did he leave her everything, he told her in the will, you can freely dispense of these gifts as you see fit. So Holy Mother Church, the Bride of Christ, since his death, resurrection, and ascension to heaven, she dispenses from the treasury of merits, from, from those merits that he won from the cross on that first Good Friday when he died for all of us. She continues to dispense from the treasury of merits, and one of those great gifts from that treasury of merits is the gift of a plenary indulgence. All right, Or the ability to atone for temporal punishment already due to... Uh, or due to already forgiven mortal and venial sin. Mm-hmm. You know, Father Wade, it, it kind of strikes me that in that list that you gave, the things that people, that they fear, that not only did they not state that they feared hell, but there wasn't a fear of death. How we end this life and the way that ends, you you would think that would be something. But then again, you you see in modern culture right now, the things that are lifted up, especially for the young, that's very attractive to your younger generation, are cultural uh, uh, phenoms like the walking dead, the zombie culture. And then you have you right. know, a whole series of vampire cultures where the, the heroine gives up her gift of life to be able to run around undead with her vampire boyfriend. And we try to push off death. I mean, why do you suppose that wasn't on the list? You know, I, I, that's a good question. I, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe these various series that you just mentioned is the culture's way of saying, hey, we, the members of the culture, are afraid of death. We don't want to die. That's why we're turning to the walking dead, because they may be dead, but they're still walking around, seemingly live. 
the vampire culture, technically dead, but still walking around seemingly alive. And, and for vampires in perpetuum, you know, forever and ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Glamorizing uh, it. M- yeah, maybe this is the culture's way of saying, look, we, we, the members of the culture, are afraid of death, and so we turn to these things. But in reality, Catholic Christian doctrine says that for those who die in a state of grace, they are not to fear death. It's, it's a really easy number to remember in the Catechism. Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 1010, you know how each paragraph is numbered in the Catechism. Mm-hmm. Number 1010, listen to this. Because of Jesus Christ, Christian death has a positive meaning. And now quoting Philippians 1.21, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is a gain. And then 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, The saying is sure, if we have died with Christ, we shall also live with Christ. So, number 10.10 continues, What is essentially new about Christian death, then, is this. Through baptism, the Christian has already died with Christ sacramentally, in order to live a new life. And the three-time submersion in the water or the three-time pouring over the forehead of the infant is symbolic of that dying to Christ, uh, dying with Christ sacramentally, in order to rise up from the waters and to live a new life, okay? Mm-hmm. But if we die in Christ's grace, having lived that baptized life, okay, it's a baptized life now because we were baptized, if we die in a state of sanctifying grace, which simply means no known mortal sin, when at the time of our death, if we die in Christ's grace, then physical death, literal physical death, completes the dying with Christ begun at baptism. Why? Because Christ physically died as well. And so our physical death literally completes our full incorporation into him in his redeeming act for us from the cross. Now that's pretty powerful. Physical death is the seal of the seal, the stamp, the final stamping, the final sealing of the of the envelope, if you will. Physical death literally completes our dying with Christ, begun sacramentally and symbolically in the submersion of baptism at the time of our baptism. Why does our physical death fully complete it? Because Christ experienced a physical death as well. Now, this is a physical death that comes naturally, obviously. This is not a physical death that comes through euthanasia or through suicide or anything like that where the person purposefully takes his or her own life, okay? Mm -hmm. Granted, in the mystery of Christ, he can still save the person, but but this is primarily in a natural death that we're talking about, okay? That, that beautiful line from the old black-and-white classic film from the early 1940s, Boys Town, about Father Flanagan, he, there's a wonderful line at the beginning of the film where he says, um, at the, the, the time of the end of life uh, should come from the creator of life. In other words, God alone has that saying when the life comes to an end because he's the creator of life. You know, mm-hmm. uh, but but that number ten ten is so powerful again because of Christ. Christian death has a positive meaning. What is essentially new about Christian death is this: through baptism, the Christian has already died with Christ sacramentally and symbolically in the three times submersion in the waters in order to live a new baptized life on earth. Thus, at the end of that life, if we die in Christ's sanctifying grace. Physical death, literally physical death, then completes the dying with Christ begun at baptism, and so completes our full incorporation into him 
in his redeeming act from the cross on that Good Friday. So death does have a positive meaning. So in one sense, if a person is not afraid of death, that's a good thing, um, provided they're, believing, they're not afraid of death because of the right reason. They're not afraid of death because they know that it fully incorporates them into the, into the, the Christ the head, mm-hmm. the head of the Church. You know, this is a beautiful reality. Father Wade, you know, there will be people that are hearing what you have to say, and inside their hearts, a, a great fear begins to arise. Not Maybe not for themselves, but for loved ones. Those you know, parents who are fearful for their children, that this reality of the four last things really hasn't taken hold in their hearts. Well, you know, this is why we're called to be good students of the faith, and branching off from being a good student of the faith comes the reality of being a good evangelizer of the faith. Mm -hmm. For example, I like to share with my listeners, it's a staple tradition, lowercase t, it's a staple tradition in our beautiful Catholic faith for one to pray daily for the grace of a holy and happy death. Do you do that? Do you do that? That's what I ask the person. Mm-hmm. Do you pray daily in your morning rosary or your afternoon rosary or your daily Divine Mercy Chaplet, or do you offer a communion for yourself on, at Sunday Mass or, or weekday Mass if you go to weekday Mass? Um, do you offer that communion for the grace of a holy and happy death? What a beautiful thing to pray for daily. We pray for our health. We pray for our life to stay safe. Why don't we pray for the grace of a happy death? And by the grace of a happy death, the Church has always meant traditionally five things. Number one, to die in a state of sanctifying grace. That is simply to say, with no known mortal sin on one's soul that has not been sacramentally forgiven in the sacrament of penance. Number two, to receive the sacrament of the intention of the sick if our death is preceded by an illness. Number three, to receive Holy Viaticum, that is, one's final Holy Communion, if the last stages of their life are such in circumstance that they are able to receive Holy Viaticum. They may not be able to. For example, if they're in a car accident and they're now in ICU, they might be covered on the face with all kinds of um, apparatus, breathing apparatus. They're not able to receive Holy Communion. But if they are, to receive Holy Viaticum, that is, one's, one's final Holy Communion. Number four, to have the prayers of commendation for the dying prayed over the person. And number five, to have the apostolic pardon imparted to them by a priest, which doubly acts as a plenary indulgence, which wipes away all temporal punishment due to sin because of the magisterial gift of this great, great grace through the teaching office of the Church, the Magisterium, which comes to us through the power of the keys, the Apostolic College. That's why it's called the Apostolic Pardon, okay? The, mm-hmm. the College of the Original Twelve with Peter at their head. So again, to die in a state of sanctifying grace with no known mortal sin on their soul that has not been sacramentally forgiven. Number two, to receive the sacrament of the anointing of the sick if one's death is preceded by an illness. To receive Holy Viaticum one's final Holy Communion, if they're able to, if the circumstances are such at their end-of-life stages that they are able to receive, they may not be able to receive. Number four, to, to have the prayers of commendation for the divine prayed over us. And number five, to have received the apostolic pardon, which also confers a plenary indulgence upon the person. So, of, of those five things, only one may not be able to be received. And if it's not able to be received, it's still the grace of a happy death, because God's not going to hold us to anything that we're not able to, to, to control beyond ourselves. So, 
So the only one of the five that may not be able to be received is one's final Holy Communion, again, if they're in such a state that they have all kinds of medical apparatus on it. But so the remaining four things would still be the fullness of a, of a holy and happy death for them. You know, it's interesting, St. Joseph is the patron saint, Chris, of mm-hmm. a holy and happy death. And why is that? Because of two, uh, two things. Uh, number one, uh, he, he was the guardian of the Redeemer who saved the, the Redeemer, the, the, the baby Jesus, from death uh, when Herod ordered his army to go kill all the males aged two and younger because he felt his throne was threatened after the visit of the three kings when the three kings told him about the baby, okay, mm-hmm. he sent his army to go kill the, 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 the massacre of the innocents that we celebrate at the end of December every year after Christmas. Uh, well, Jesus fled to Egypt with the Holy Family. He protected the Christ child, the, the Redeemer, the God-man, Jesus Christ, as a baby. He protected him from death. So that's the first reason why he's called the patron saint of, of a happy death. Number two, there's a very strong tradition that, that says that when Joseph died... He was flanked on either side of his deathbed by his bride, the Blessed Mother, the Blessed Virgin Mary, and on the other side of his deathbed by his foster son, Jesus Christ. The devils didn't have a chance to get to him, to tempt him uh, at the final end of his life. Okay, mm-hmm. so, the, so this tradition holds that he was flanked on either side of his deathbed by Jesus and, and Mary. So that's the second reason why Joseph is called the patron saint of a happy and holy death. I just have a strong devotion to St. Joseph. You know, foster a strong devotion to St. Joseph. Oh, I, the, the, everything in the book, Father Wade, is so phenomenal. The Four Last Things, A Catechetical Guide to Death, Judgment, Heaven, and Hell. And I just have to say there's a, a great gem in there, an unexpected, wonderful gem in this book, and it's Chapter 5, and it's on the necessity of the spiritual life. That in itself, I think you could, I, I would love for you to even write another book and expand on that. That is, I think, one of the most essential things in here. Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate that. You know, I, I wanted to write a closing chapter that was very uplifting and, and positive after talking about, you know, the, the first four chapters of, of, of the four last things, properly speaking. And uh, even though I, I must say I, I've, I'm I'm very humbled by the people who have read the book who said who say Father Wade the whole book is an upbeat book mm-hmm. it's it's written very it's written in a very joyful tone you're very positive throughout so I'm very humbled by that because I did I did uh, attempt to do that Johnette Bankovic of of Women of Grace is one of the four primary endorsers of the book and the quote that she wrote in, in endorsing the book uh, really humbled me as well. She says, this book has filled me with great, great hope of what is to come. And I just thought that that really encapsulates what I hoped to do in the book, was to lift, lift people up and give them great joy in studying the four last things. But nevertheless, as, as, as you state in chapter 5, because the first four chapters are respectively in their traditional order, chapters 1 through 4, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. The fifth chapter, chapter five, the final chapter, is titled simply The Necessity of the Spiritual Life. And I give ten or so suggestions of what we can do to help get ourselves on the right track. And I'll comb through them fairly briefly now for interest of the interview here. But monthly confession, what a beautiful thing, Chris. Monthly confession, 12 times a year confession, which is not too much to ask when you realize that the year has 365 days in it, huh? 
12 is nothing when compared to 365. And go on the first Friday or first Saturday of each month in honor of the Sacred Heart or Immaculate Heart of Mary devotions. It's a wonderful way to remember, oh, I'm, I'm going to go to confession. I need to get, to get to confession. And even if you're not aware of any known mortal sin, Praise God for that. Go to confession anyway once a month. Make it a devotional confession, meaning that you just confess venial sins. That's a beautiful thing, you know, because mm-hmm. mortal sin absolutely needs the sacrament of penance, the tribunal of mercy. Venial sin doesn't. There's other ways to have venial sins forgiven, making a good act of contrition, um, uh, uh, carrying out, the, the, again, the three eminent good works, the, the 14 works of mercy, all with the in, intention of, of of having your venial sin forgiven, because venial sin doesn't sever supernatural charity, mortal sin does. So if, if you're not aware of any mortal sin month to month, praise God for that. Go to confession anyway once a month for a devotional confession, meaning simply that you're confessing just venial sins. In fact, if the truth be known, Chris, if a person goes to confession faithfully once a month, faithfully, 12 times a year, chances are, chances are, they won't have any mortal sin to confess each month. It's precisely the, the practice of a monthly confession that is per se keeping them away from mortal sin. That's the beauty of monthly confession. Number two, weekly Eucharist at Sunday Mass. Number three, the morning offering. Make a morning offering each morning when you get up. Consecrate yourself to the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Close that morning offering with an act of contrition, huh? Mm -hmm. How do you know that's not the day you're going to die? How do you know that's not the day you're going to be hit by an 18-wheeler rig on the interstate and die? You don't know that, okay? I hate to be so graphic and so much of a realist, but this is the reality of life, Mm -hmm. you know? Get Get ready to meet your Maker, and joyfully, with no known mortal sin, with a close relationship to him. How about the daily rosary? That's number four on the list. The daily divine mercy chaplet. A fasting according to the mind of the church. You know, two small meals that together do not equal the one sustaining meal that you have, and then nothing in between those three meals, with the exception of of water or any medicines you might need to take for health purposes. Well, heck, you know, not, not trying to pat myself on the shoulder, but that's pretty much what I do each day, and not really for the intention of fasting, but just for health purposes. Mm-hmm. You know, two smaller meals that together do not quite equal the one sustaining meal that I have, and then nothing in between except, except water or any, any med- medical uh, necessities or medicines that one needs to take. That's what I mean by fasting, quote-unquote, according to the mind of the church. Okay. Uh, two daily examinations of conscience. The midday examine is called the particular examine, done around noon each day. When we look at a particular vice we're trying to root out or a particular virtue we're trying to advance. And then at the end of the day, the general examination of conscience, just before we, re- we retire and go to bed, we look at the whole day generally and uh, how we did each that day in regards to all virtues we're trying to advance and all vices we're trying to uproot. Close each one of those two examines, whether the particular examine at midday or the general examine at the end of the day, close each of those examinations of conscience with an act of contrition. You know? So this is just a, a, a minute and a half to two minute exercise, huh? the general examine and the, and, the, and the midday examine. How about the practice of the aspiratory prayers said throughout the day? Um, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, I love you, save souls. Uh, O Mary, concede without sin, pray for us who have recourse to thee. My guardian angel, protect me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Each time we pass a cemetery, uh, eternal rest grant unto them, O Lord, and let perpetual light shine upon them. May they rest in peace. Amen. Uh, 
Each time we pass a Catholic Church with the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, O sacrament most holy, O sacrament divine, all praise and all thanksgiving be every moment thine. These, these short aspiratory prayers that we say throughout the day that help us practice the presence of God throughout the day, they're quick, they don't take a, a strong or fervent act of the will. They become more habitual more than anything else, but they're done with great love. How about the daily liturgical reading, like for Magnificat magazine or One Bread, One Body or The, the Word Among Us? Mm-hmm. Um, so even if you don't get to Mass that day on a weekday, you still know what the daily liturgical readings were or you know who the saint of the day was. huh? And then number 10, the use of sacramentals. You know, wearing the, the medal of your confirmation patron saint. Confirmation made us what of Christ? Soldiers of Christ. Huh? Wear the, the medal of your confirmation patron saint. Wear the medal of your baptismal name patron saint. Um, have your rosary blessed. Um, be enrolled in the brown scapular of Our Lady of Mount Carmel. Huh? Um, go to confession on your baptismal anniversary. Go to confession on your confirmation day anniversary from the eighth grade or, or sophomore in high school, whenever you were confirmed. Go to confession on your wedding anniversary day. Go to confession on your priestly ordination anniversary. Um, make a pilgrimage. Do the Stations of the Cross. Uh, not only indoors in the church, but go to a shrine that has a beautiful set of outdoor stations. These are all use of sacramentals. Uh, uh, bless your children on that morning that they depart for college. Uh, the beautiful imparting of a blessing with one's right thumb from their right hand upon the forehead of their child, calling down the Blessed Trinity's protection upon their child as they go to college. Huh? Uh, have your house blessed. Have the, have the Sacred Heart enthroned in your home. Have the Immaculate Heart of Mary enthroned in your home, the two hearts of Jesus and Mary. Um, These are all examples of sacramentals. These are all things that we do to help lead us straight on the the way to salvation, you know. Um, And then lastly, I, I mentioned four staple texts that should be in every Catholic home, by no means an exhaustive list. Huh? Mm-hmm. Uh, four, four staple texts, the Bible, a chapter a day followed by meditation. That's just a five to ten minute exercise. Read one chapter of Scripture and then meditate on it for five to seven minutes before you start your work day. Get up early. Sit in your favorite chair with your good, strong cup of coffee that you love each morning. Sit in that recliner chair. Read that chapter of Scripture and just meditate there. Uh, what a beautiful way to begin your day. Uh, and then along with sacred scripture, the catechism of the Catholic Church, read three paragraphs a day, systematically go through the catechism in a whole year, know the faith, be a student of faith, be an evangelizer of the faith. Number three, St. Faustina's Diary, Divine Mercy in My Soul, just a beautiful, beautiful work. Uh, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI called the diary, quote, one of the greatest works of mystical literature in the 2,000-year history of the Church. Hmm. What's that mean? Well, it means that he's putting Faustina's diary from the 1930s on the shelf right next to other great spiritual classics as St. Teresa of Avila's The Way of Perfection, St. Francis, uh, um, uh, Francis, uh, uh, Francis yeah. Francis de Sales' Introduction to the Devout Life. Um, St. Therese's Story of the Soul, Thomas Akempis's uh, The Imitation of Christ, uh, all along these other great spiritual classics, Augustine's Confessions or Augustine's City of God. Again, Faustina's Diary, one of the greatest works of mystical literature in the 2,000-year history of the Church. And then lastly, I recommend, as a staple text, a good condensed version of the lives of the saints. So I mean by condensed. 
each saint's life is maybe a page to a page and a half long. Read one a week, if not one a day. You can buy, for example, a 365-day reader of the lives of the saints, condensed, uh, where it's meant, you're meant to take one saint a day, again, just a page to a page and a half, and pay particular attention to those saints that have the same state in life as you. So husbands and fathers, pay particular attention to those canonized saints of the church or those blessings of the church who are husbands and fathers. Wives and mothers, the same thing. Uh, religious order priests like myself, I pay particular attention to those religious order priests. Now, we can benefit from reading any saint's life. So, for example, I can benefit from reading the life of the saint of a, of a husband and father or a wife and a mother. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. All I'm saying is, all I'm saying here is, is to pay particular attention to those saints who have the same state in life as you. Why? Because the saints lived in the modern world of their time, just as we live in the modern world of our time. If they did it, Chris, we can do it, huh? Single persons uh, pay particular attention to those saints who were single. Catherine of Siena, St. Maria Goretti, uh, Blessed Pier Giorgio Frassati, Dominic Savio, etc. So we can all benefit from reading the life of any saint. Just pay particular attention to those saints who, who have the same state in life as you. Father Wade, it, really, all of that is just an incredible steeping, like a tea bag, into a, a life geared for holiness, isn't it? It is, it is, and it's, you know, baby steps, huh? Uh, There's a wonderful quote from St. Philip Neri, who was a very sanguine and temperament, happy-go-lucky, practical jokester type of a a person. He's, He's the founder of the Oratorian Fathers. He says, look, one should not wish to become a saint in four days, but little by little, step by step, grace by grace. So these 10 or 11 things that I mentioned in this list in, in, in my chapter 5 the, titled The Necessity of the Spiritual Life, they're not to all be meant to be taken on at one time, but baby steps. You know, Start with monthly confession. Stay faithful to Sunday Eucharist. Slowly but surely take on the daily rosary, especially during this 100th anniversary year of Fatima. Take on the, the daily chaplet of Divine Mercy. Begin to read a scripture once a week, then gradually move to to once a day, a chapter a day. You know, baby steps, little by little. You know, of all these things that I have on this list, which one's the longest? The rosary, mm-hmm. a five-decade rosary, 17 to 20 minutes in length. That's the longest thing on the list. All the other things are shorter than that. So we can incorporate these things into our daily life. How about taking a rosary walk for your daily rosary? Do it in a walk or the daily chaplet during your lunch hour at work. Or how about going for a walk with your spouse and praying the rosary, especially these beautiful fall evenings, huh? So, so be innovative, you know, be innovative. Our Lord loves an innovative soul, and we're all called to become great, great saints. This is the message of the four last things, and I state it in the book. What's the ultimate message regarding the church's eschatology? We are all called to become great, great saints. Father Wade, it wouldn't be the the great lie and the, and the great danger to believe that you can't do these things. In yes. reality, the temptation of the enemy is to direct us away from that gift of heaven towards a life, you know, quite literally for eternal life in hell. And so, you know, we have so many distractions for somebody to say they can't do what you've just outlined, but yet we spend so much time on a computer, so much time on the television, so much time on the Internet. 
Boy, you make an excellent point. There's two main categories that pull us away from striving to become great saints, what this chapter 5 is all about. It's distractions, category number one, as you just said, and remaining in our woundedness, Mm. whatever that woundedness is. Uh, We continue to wallow in the mire, as Scripture says, or we act like the dog that returns to its vomit, as Scripture says. In other words, we don't get healed, whatever that is. Maybe it was a a major falling out with a friend or relative. Maybe it was a a, a fierce, fierce divorce battle um, when we can't move forward. No, God wants you healed. Maybe it's something from your childhood. Maybe you were the victim of abuse, some type of abuse, psychological, verbal, sexual, whatever. Um, or, Or maybe you were the perpetrator of the abuse. And you can't forgive yourself from all those years ago when you were the perpetrator of the abuse. Whatever it is, don't wallow in the mire. Don't be the dog that returns to its vomit. What are the words, Chris, that we hear right after the Our Father at every single Mass we attend? Lord Jesus Christ, who said to your apostles, I leave you peace. My peace I give you. In other words, he wants to give us his peace. He does not want us to fall to pieces. And it's distractions and remaining in our woundedness of our past. Both of those, or at least one of those categories, that keep us from pursuing the road of holiness and becoming great, great saints. That's why it's important to know the four last things. To be aware. Absolutely. It's a message of salvation. The Church's eschatology is a message of salvation. It's, salvation. it's, a, it's a message of hope. It's, it's a message of, yeah, I want to get back on the right track. Yeah, I, I want to I start helping people. Yeah, I want to uh, atone for temporal punishment for my forgiven sin. You know, I've been going to confession regularly, but beyond confession, I really don't do much outside of confession to atone for that fender that still remains crashed in the bank parking lot. You know, I need to start doing some atonement. I'm going to start fasting on Fridays. I'm going to start saying a rosary. Uh, my rosary every other day, will, while I pray the rosary daily, my rosary every other day will be for the holy souls in purgatory, the members of the church suffering. Uh, you know, I want to start atoning for temporal punishment. This is what the, the study of the four last things does. It gets us back on the right track. Well, Father, I so wish we had more time. I mean, I really do. But that's the beauty of having your book, The Four Last Things, A Catechetical Guide to Death, Judgment, Heaven, and Hell, and the blessing of the Fathers of Mercy and your missions that you conduct throughout the United States all the time. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a delightful conversation. I really want to uh, thank you for having me on. Well, any final thoughts? Yes, yes. If anybody would like to get the book, they can go to EWTNRC.com. Again, EWTNRC.com. That stands for the Eternal Word Television Network uh, Religious Catalog, EWTN.com. I'm sorry, EWTNRC.com. And also, I invite all of your listeners, Chris, to visit FathersOfMercy.com. It could be that there's a priest listening to this conversation who would like to have a parish mission preached at his parish. Uh, we, we preach parish missions, retreats, devotions, conferences, etc. So, for example, father-son retreats, mother-daughter retreats, uh, day-long confirmation retreats, for example. We cater to the need, the four-night parish mission, the five-night parish mission. Maybe the priest wants to have a husband and wife weekend retreat at his parish. Whatever it is, uh, Catholic family conferences in hotels. Maybe there's a men's conference being planned for your diocese that's going to be held at the local uh, uh, civic center. We go in and preach that. So we cater to the need. So Fathers of Mercy, 
com. We are itinerant missionary preachers. Well, I can't think of a better spiritual program to uh, introduce your a parish to, especially at, at this time when people are questing so much, you know, what can we do? What can we offer the people? It, it, it seems to me, Father, that your mission is to give us what the Church has always offered us. Amen. Amen. We are, we are faithful preachers to, the, to Holy Mother Church, the Bride of Christ. We, we like to, to preach the faithful truths of our one holy Catholic and apostolic faith. And as I like to say, the Fathers of Mercy preach right in line with the chair of Peter. We swerve neither left nor right to the chair of Peter, but, but preach right in line with the chair of St. Peter, the faithfulness to the magisterium. That's our goal. Uh, can we receive your, uh, a blessing, Father? We'd really appreciate it. Absolutely, Chris. To you and your program and to all your listeners, may Almighty God bless you this day and always, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Father Wade Menezes, thank you so much. You're welcome, Chris. God bless you now. Bye-bye. Thank Bye-bye. With Father Wade Menezes, we've gone inside the pages of The Four Last Things, a catechetical guide to death, judgment, heaven, and hell. To learn more about this book or to obtain a copy, go to EWTMPublishing.com, the website for its publisher, EWTN. Or you can find it at any fine Catholic bookstore. To hear and or to download hundreds of other spiritual programs, visit DiscerningHearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if you have found this helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to support our efforts. But most of all, we pray that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Inside the Pages, Insights from Today's Most Compelling Authors.